Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. If it hadn't been for this house. Ah, we wouldn't have been here because we wouldn't have had nowhere to hide. Rosewood. You won't find an accurate account of it in any history book. Yet, about 40 people were killed here one terrifying week 60 years ago. When you think about it, far greater atrocities have happened elsewhere in the world. But Rosewood belongs to America. It's a real American horror story. The wonder is that it stayed secret so long. Many Lee Langley never even... Welcome to Right Lane, a podcast of the Tampa Bay Times. Each week, Times reporter Elaine Gregory discusses her stories and answers your questions. The focus is on craft. My name is Maria Carrillo, and I'm the Enterprise Editor at The Times. Today, we wanted to talk about Lane's most recent story, which focused on an interesting property that was recently put on the market. So the topic, the last house in Rosewood. First, Lane, can you talk a little bit about this story and the history of this place? Yeah, so um, Rosewood is a little town that doesn't really exist anymore. Um, It's sort of on the long road into Cedar Key, so it's about three hours uh, north of St. Petersburg, where we are and it was uh, a really thriving town in the turn of the century. Um, the last century. The last century, <laughs> the late 1800s, uh, early 1900s. It was almost predominantly African-American, and it was um, there was a timber mill, there was a pencil factory, there was a, a molasses um, uh, operation, and it was a lot of African-American people who actually owned their own homes, and they weren't just sharecroppers. They owned their businesses, they owned their homes, and it was a, a thriving town until... Um, a, a white woman in 1923 on New Year's Day um, came out of her home saying she'd been beaten up by a black man who had broken into her house. And there was a lot of controversy about whether that did or didn't happen. A lot of the people in the town said oh, she had a boyfriend and she was, uh, you know, blaming it on this, this black guy. It was a white boyfriend. A white boyfriend. The, yes. who, and she was married um, to the head of the lumber mill in, in the next town over. And so it, it, what ensued was a horrible... Um, a racial riot and basically a mob that came from all parts of the state. Eventually it lasted for a week. Um, uh, Some people say upwards of 60 people were injured or killed. The official death count, I think, was seven or eight people officially. Um, But yeah, it was was a terrible mob that came in fueled by the KKK. Um, And they burned down every house in the town of Rosewood except for one, which was owned by a man named John Wright. He was a white man, one of the only white men in the town. He owned a store. Um, and he ended up saving a bunch of the black uh, women and children by hiding them in his house, in his attic, in his well, in his barn. So while they were burning down the rest of the town, his house still stood. Um, and the house has been there since the turn of the since the early 1900s. Um, and it had not been on the market uh, since the 70s. Um, so this is for the first time this house was being offered up for public sale. And now I'm, we're going to move to some questions from R.B. Brenner who's a former Washington Post editor and now a journalism professor at Stanford. So he he emailed these to Lane. 
R.B. says that his friend Manny Fernandez, who reports for the New York Times from Texas, likes to say that when he pursues a story, he encounters two types of people, pathfinders and actors. For your piece about the sale of The Last House in Rosewood, Fuji Scoggins is the lead actor. She is the owner of the house. Um, But R.B. was interested in hearing about your pathfinder, who would be Mike Dorso, and how a reporter you worked with in the 1990s started you down a path that ended with a story in May of 2018. Yeah, it's a long time to wait for a story. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> so the original story about Rosewood uh, was published in the St. Petersburg Times in 1982. Um, and it got a lot, a lot, a lot of international attention. Uh, Mike Dorso was a reporter who I worked with at the Virginian Pilot back in the early 90s. I was in a bureau writing like three news stories a day covering city council and school board. And Mike was off left to write books, and um, one of the first ones that gained a lot of success was a book he did about Rosewood, which later John Singleton turned into a movie starring John Voight, and all of a sudden it got national attention. So his book was in um, 1996, so that would have been, what, like 14 years after the original St. Pete Times story came out, uh, that it got this more national audience. Um, Mike and I vaguely kept in touch after he left to write books, and I kind of moved up from a little bureau reporter to being a featured writer, enterprise story person, and he knew I'd moved to the St. Pete Times. So um, five years ago in 2013, he got a call from a realtor who was the son-in-law of the woman who owns the house, Fuji Scoggins, and said, oh, we're about to put this house on sale. We think there's this historical significance, and maybe someone would want to preserve it for a museum or, or, or some kind of you know posterity's sake beyond just buying a cool house in the middle of nowhere in Florida. Um, so Mike called me and said, would you be interested in doing this uh, story follow-up for the St. Pete Times? Um, and I was, and I did, and I went with a photographer, and we spent a couple days there and interviewed the owner of the house and interviewed some of the neighbors, um, looked up a lot of the history, went into some archives to see what had happened to all the people. Um, but then the owner of the house decided she wasn't ready to sell it. She was like 79 years old and still spry and kicking and able to clean the cobwebs on her porch, and so she sat there, um, and it took five years of me sort of emailing the realtor every couple times a year, like, is she going to sell it? What's going on with the house? And just sort of reminding him that, like, when it does go up for sale, I'd like to write about it. We, we talked about writing about it way back then, five years ago, but it was more of, there was no news peg or news hook at that time. So we wanted to wait till something actually was going on the market. So, and that leads to Arby's next question, which he says, so you almost wrote this story five years ago. He says, so you did extensive reporting, and then Fuji decided not to sell. It takes self-discipline to wait, five years in this case, for the right moment. It also takes editors who appreciate the virtue of patience. Was the decision an obvious one at the time, or did you agonize as you stared at a reporter's notebook filled with rich material? Yeah, I think the thing that was more surprising for me was that I could find those notes again after five years. <laughs> I, I mean, I had gobs and gobs of notes. I think when you first came, I yeah. mentioned this unfinished you had a pile business of story. Yeah. Um, so I basically cleared out a file drawer in my desk and just dumped them all in there, and they all sat there for five years untouched. And um, Did you want to write it back then? I mean, was there a part of you that wanted to write it in that moment? Yeah, I was ready to write it. You know, when, when she pulled the plug, I was just waiting for her to tell me, okay, I wanted the moment of her signing the papers. I thought, oh, that'd be a good scene for me to have her sign the papers. And that didn't come and didn't come and didn't come. And finally, I was like, 
is this ever going to happen? You know, and the daughter wanted me to push her into selling the house. And I was like, that is not my job. <laughs> you guys talk her into it yourself, you know. So the photographer who did it with me, she had left as well. And it just kind of got shelved, I guess, for most of those years. I've, I've driven past there a couple of times on the way to other stories and kept thinking, like, what's up with that house, you know. But you basically moved on, and you weren't really thinking about this story. You did. You just put it, you filed it all away. And then recently when, when this came back up again, you, <laughs> I mean, seriously, people, this is like what, like, it must have been a five-inch stack of documents and notes and things like that, right? I mean, it, I'm, I saved it all, and I'm glad I saved it all, because a lot of times when stories happen like that, I'll just chuck it and think it's never going to happen. But I knew eventually whether she died or somebody forced her out of there so right. she was going to have to sell the house so so um, that was some comfort you knew the story was going to be there at some day someday you were going to be able to write a story yeah yeah and i did keep up with the the daughter and son-in-law you know all right. that over all that time but then when you know this time when i sat down to write it i'd saved myself a couple weeks of reporting you know it was right. it came together pretty quickly once i got the update and nobody was pushing you to do it because you the same for the same reason they didn't feel like there was a strong hook yet right yeah so um, RB asks, he says, related, most newsrooms operate on hyperspeed now. What advice can you offer a young reporter who may not have the luxury of even a week to work on a story, but he wants the payoff that can come from waiting for journalism's version of a perfect wave? Nice question. That is a good question. <laughs> and, and I think the answer is multi-layered, but mostly like have a bunch of things going on at once. You know, I've, mm -hmm. I've never been content to just have one big project I'm working on. Um, even the story that won the Pulitzer, I, I worked on it for six months. I had 25 other bylines in those six months. So just if you always have something you can be picking away at, it doesn't seem like you're waiting. You know, it's like it's it's going to happen eventually, but I've got these other things on the side project too. I, I can't imagine waiting out a single story until something paid off, you and, know. And picking away, right? Right. I mean, because that's something else you might do. I mean, you know, take some notes, do something, put it away for a while, come back to it. Absolutely. And have, have that list, you know, I've usually got 20, 25 people I want to talk to for a story. So if there's a downtime on this story, I'll come back to that story. If I'm waiting for documents on this story, I can make a call on that story. So having a lot of irons in the fire, I think. I still find, I mean, I, I, he's not wrong in the question about hyperspeed and, and how much you know, people are trying to get done. But um, I, st I still find, I think in this newsroom and really every newsroom I've worked on, you know, like people were willing to wait for a good story. I mean, they it's like you, they'll want you to do some other story in the meantime. Right. But, you know, if you have something and, and they know that if we give it a little time, we'll have a better story. I don't yeah. find people are like unwilling. I think if you can articulate what the payoff's going to be, too, not yeah. just like, I need three more weeks. If you say, right. oh, in three weeks, the, the mother's going to visit with the dog for the first time. Okay, then you got something to concrete yeah, to wait for point. and bank it on. Okay, so RB says, uh, so for five years, you saved your interview notes and kept checking back with Fuji's daughter and son-in-law to remind them to let you know as soon as the house was for sale. Finally, that day came, and they lived up to their promise. Did you? But did you have some nervous moments in the process, wondering if word would leak and you'd be scooped? Yeah, word did kind of leak. Um, they Gainesville's son uh, 
wrote a story about the house going on the market. And I, I remember being a little bit panically like, oh, I'm waiting five years and now they scoop me on this, you know. But their story wasn't at all what I had reported. And I knew or what I you had, had in mind. Right. Yeah. I knew I had a much different story. Um, and I, I didn't, you know, the first time I reported the story, I didn't really report much about Fuji. I reported about the, the owners getting old. She's there by herself. It's hard to keep up the property. But I didn't really ask much about how she got there or what her backstory was. So... And and the first time, I should say, her daughter was there, and her daughter did a lot of the talking for her and over her. And this time, the daughter wasn't there, and so I got a lot of Fuji mm. time. And, and she was, uh, you know, it's not about me. You always have those people. It's not about me. It's not about me. I'm like, I know, but I just want to know about you. You know, I didn't sell her that it was going right. to be about her, but I just wanted to know her backstory. And that became a huge part of this story, um, which made it more interesting and multi-layered than just the house, I think. Yeah, we're getting to another question on Fuji's background. But um, I think one thing for us, too, is like, it's not in our backyard. So the, I mean, the fact the house is for sale is is a news item, but it wasn't something that was crying out like, if we didn't get to it in that week, we actually held this. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Story a week because we wanted to make it a Sunday centerpiece. Um, you know, the interesting story for our readers was the complete story. It wasn't just the house is for sale, but it was to to tell the whole background and, and all of that. And so I think the, the news item that came out was really a straightforward news item about the house sale and actually it ran on the wires and the wire editors were like uh they they almost ran it and then they had overheard lane and i talking about this this was i had not done a good job i guess of communicating far and wide that we were doing the story but they had overheard us talking and then thought to ask and then held off on running the wire the little wire notice that, that came through the sun the yeah thank sun. goodness they knew we had that in the pipeline yeah. there i think yeah. i did but tell I, other people i just didn't tell yeah. everyone i mean I, th- I think a big part of that too for our readers was retelling it we hadn't yeah. retold the story of the massacre since 1982 so right. there was this whole another New generation yeah. of people who didn't know the whole story of rosewood or had heard of the movie back in the 90s but didn't know the whole story right um, so, yeah, this comes one, dovetails with one of RV's questions. He says, one of the most poignant parts of your piece is Fuji's life story, including the destruction of her family's home on Saipan when she was 10 to make way for a U.S. airbase. You tell the story of her encounter with a World War II veteran in a Cedar Key restaurant where she was waiting tables. He kept glaring at her and finally said, I hate your people. After reporting Fuji's reply, I'm very sorry that you feel that way, but war is war. It's not the people. You wrote, she said she didn't cry, but he did. For me, the scene linked past and present, transcended geography and the exploration of prejudice and hate, and introduced a glimmer of hope. Did Fuji's backstory come out in your recent reporting, or did you have some of this in 2013? So you've answered some of that, but yeah, you had more of an opportunity to sit with her and and she, none of them had ever put those two things together, right? No, and she didn't want to talk about it. Her granddaughter didn't even know that story. and she didn't. She also was very wary that she didn't want to make it seem to her neighbors like 
she didn't want to bring up other prejudice that she'd felt or, or heard in the neighborhood. Right. She didn't want to make waves, even now. So yeah. I had to report that out through her son and son-in-law mm-hmm. to get some examples to come back at her, like the, the man in the restaurant. She would never have told me that. Mm-hmm. But her son-in-law told me the story so that I could take it back to her and say, What's your recollection of this? Yeah. You know, she certainly seemed like a woman of her age, like in terms of like not wanting to make waves about anything, you know, and sort of had led this quiet life and um, didn't really want to get into the middle of all of that. And um, I think had probably benefited from being a low key kind of person, right? Yeah. yeah and in fact, she, you know, she didn't know the history of the house when she moved in there. It wasn't until maybe ten or twelve years later that. The reporter knocked on their door and told her the story of the house. And even then, she didn't... The whole country's taking interest, and she never even watched the damn movie. You know, she was not interested. She was, I think, very much... um, And she said this, I'm just trying to survive. You know, it was a day-to-day thing. She's waiting tables at age 79 years old just to keep her rent paid or whatever. And it was much more about surviving than making a statement of some kind. Did you get a feeling like like I feel like I felt like I came away feeling though that she she did have an appreciation for the history ultimately and if like she didn't seem like she wanted to really say a presence and her and her kids are trying to sell it to whoever wants to buy it whether they sell you know whether it's somebody who just wants a nice property or whether it's somebody who thinks it's a historic property and wants to save it but there did seem a part of her that sort of felt like this place is bigger than me it's like you know uh yeah, I, I, I mean, she'd been there all by herself in this big, giant house for all those years. So I think, if nothing else, that house had become her sanctuary. Right. But she also understood that it had a place in this community, you know, mm. that the community was not evolving that much. <laughs> <laughs> all these years later. Um, okay, back to RB. He says, uh, Gary Moore's 1982 article in the St. Pete Times is heavily historical, for good reason. By the time you wrote The Last House in Rosewood... A popular movie had been made, and the history was not so obscure. How did you approach telling the story for readers who were familiar with the Rosewood Massacre and for those who didn't know anything about it? What themes did you have in mind to connect fug- – these are kind of two questions. What themes did you have in mind to connect Fuji's story with that of the house she was selling? So let's first talk about that whole idea of you know, how much do we tell versus how much do we think that people know. I kind of went in assuming that people didn't know very much and that if people did know, it would be okay to retell the highlights. I mean, I would have loved to write another 30 inches on the massacre, and I had a lot, a lot of research, um, even stuff that had come out since Gary Moore had done his, you know. But that was a balance of, like, how do you balance the the news of what's happening now, Fuji's own personal story, with this sort of horrible folk tale almost that had grown up over a hundred years of people sharing it. You know, a lot of the um, news coverage after Rose, the Rosewood story from Gary Moore was about reparations. And for the first time, a lot of the survivors um, of this massacre did get money from the legislature. Not a lot, but enough that they felt like they were acknowledged, you know, and that the government had actually said, oh my God, we did something wrong. And so that was a really big part of the post- uh, coverage about about the thing. So I I chose not to focus on that very much. Um, and the last survivor had just died like a week before my story came out. So if there'd been any hope or prayer of me interviewing anybody who was actually a witness there, that was gone. Yeah. You know, she was she, like she was, four I when was it happened say, or she something. I was going to say she was a child, yeah. Yeah. So I, I think I tried to um, 
really focus on what was the most dramatic and what did people need to know. Uh, a lot of what I had to let go was the back and forth about did she, didn't she, like what the white lady's story, was it true or not? And and I kind of came up to the point like ultimately that didn't matter that much. What mattered was the aftermath of, of what occurred because of this. Right. No, and we talked about like how much if you pull away too much to the past, you kind of lose sight of where we are right now and, and what's the point of the story. So, um, and but it, but we did have a – it was nice that we had a way to get to the past through this woman. So this lady moves in, this, that lady, Japanese lady who doesn't know American history, doesn't know the history of this property. Reporter starts knocking on the door. She starts learning. And then so as she starts learning in your chronology of her, we're able to sort of tell the, okay, here's what – here in a condensed version is what she came to find out. And yes, then... she sort of becomes the proxy of, right. of the retelling. Right. But there was also, you know, her, her daughter and son-in-law kept referencing all these other racial things that had happened in that community mm. that I, I knew were factoring into what was going to happen to the house because some of the neighbors didn't want her to send up, sell it to an African-American Heritage Foundation. They didn't. They were still harboring those prejudices, you know, all these years later. But I couldn't just take their word for it, you know. So I did some other reporting about other little local papers and, and school board minutes and city council minutes and stuff to shore up, like, yeah, these incidents are still damn happening in this little school in this little town, and it's not gone away. Right. Um, so, yeah, let's talk about that other part of his question. What themes did you have in mind to connect Fuji's story with that of the house she was selling? There's obviously the, the obvious one that she herself had survived something, you know, really traumatic like that and been on the run and been a child when it happened. I mean, and the, I think the idea of refuge to me, that that was the house was her refuge. Even after her husband left her, the house was the refuge for all these African-American men and, I mean, women and children who would have been killed otherwise. Um, ref, you know, a place of refuge, I think, is, is what the theme that united those two was. It is a fascinating sto- backstory, and even the, the story of the guy who owned the house, who, I don't, you know, I don't remember the movie, honestly. I think I, re- I saw it years ago, but I don't remember how much, and, and the book, it's been so long, too, I don't remember the guy... He must have been a major character. Yeah, John Voight. So he was the only kind of known actor who played John yeah, Wright in, yeah. in the movie there. And definitely some people felt that they made him more a hero than he was. So this um, – and we, we've hit this theme on – then we're done with RB's questions, but just a couple more. Um, we've hit this theme before. But So here's this woman who, as you said, is, is kind of a reluctant uh, to, 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 to not only tell the story or to go very deep. So aside from listening and getting her kids to shut up, was there anything else that you, like anything you did to sort of just make her feel at ease? Well, the first time we went with her, um, she was gardening and she was hot and tired and she she didn't really want to stop. She didn't want to sit down and and like break her momentum. So we spent, I don't know, an hour and a half in the 80 million degree Florida sun, like watching her garden and letting her explain about her flowers and her trees and all the stuff that she was really proud of. So, I mean, I find especially it was a three hour drive there. So we knew we were going to spend some time once we got there. It wasn't like bopping in and out and giving her that first hour to show us what she was proud of, to show us her plants and her house and Mm -hmm. the things she'd fixed up and let her feel like she had some control over the story. I think that really, really helped. Um, and then the second time, it was definitely a balancing act. You know, I was, I was kind of glad that the the daughter wasn't there because it let her take ownership of the interview a little bit more. But I was also really glad her son and son-in-law were there because they could prompt her for, with stuff. You know, so it's kind of that 
that weird balance between do you want a wingman or do you not want a wingman, mm -hmm. you know, like, and we were able to balance it off a little bit too with the photographer who was sitting and talking to Fuji for a few minutes while I was talking to her son and son-in-law and then we sort of switched. Mm -hmm. So it helped having a photographer as well, like as a foil to bounce them off of. What's been the reaction to the story? Have you, have you gotten any, uh, yeah, there's a lot of move afoot to try to find the money to save it and buy it as some kind of a museum. Um, so there's a preservation society that's gotten a lot of attention um, from the story. Um, and there's a professor at the University of Central Florida who's really an anthropology and archaeology professor who's kind of taken this academic side of it on board, and he's uh, creating like a virtual rosewood so you can see what the town looked like in the day. And so between the academician and then the historical preservation society i think there's a lot of uh, the mayor of seminole called me and want to help and yeah, i think there's a lot of people who want to help preserve this in some way and here's our shout out to john singleton casey wants to come back and you know help him out i'll give you a plaque now <laughs> <laughs> um we will uh, post a link to the story on the podcast uh site but uh you can also find it just by googling uh, the last house in rosewood and lane to gregory all right. If you have a question for Lane about this story or any other, or you want to suggest a podcast topic, please email it to writelane at tampabay.com. That's W-R-I-T-E-L-A-N-E at tampabay.com. And please join us next week on Wednesday morning for the next episode. This podcast was produced by Denise Keenan. Music was composed and performed by Dan DeGregory. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.